You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Everyone wants to know, how old is Minor Matt? What is this guy, a grandpa wearing a cardigan with Werther's Reynolds just tucked away in the pocket? Uh, so Minor Matt did come up uh, unprovoked. Uh, he didn't know that these text messages were coming in, and he, he said, uh, I, I'm only 39, but I'm an old soul, old soul trapped in a millennial body. Uh, so for all the people wondering how old Minor Matt was with the Werther's original <laughs> takes. There you, you go. go. We have it official now. He is 39 yeah. years old. So, yes, I think old soul trapped in a millennial's body fits well there, Minor Matt. Uh, <laughs> and also, man, people are coming in with all their takes. Look, everyone's got different tastes. Your candy tastes are different from my candy tastes. I get it. Uh, but uh, Maltesers, some Maltesers love coming in. Uh, and also uh, the straw, the small strawberry candies are best. Which ones are those ones? Like Jolly Ranchers? No, I wonder if they mean, you know, the ones that are almost have like um, a cotton candy-ish vibe to them. He goes They're on to just... say, always at grand- grandma's house, first thing I'll grab from the bowl. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We need more details, Texter. Yes. Yeah. It's an unsigned text. Uh, keep sending him. Popeye cigarettes are the best. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like those ones I feel like age poorly. They're funny. They're funny when you're a kid, for sure. Yeah. But I don't know if as a candy, I don't know if they're the best. Uh, yeah, the, the, the Kinder Love is also coming in. Kinder Bueno, top five chocolate bar. See, okay, the whole appeal of Kinder is the egg. Like, do I need variations of Kinder to be like, this well, is why this product is good? See, I agree, though. I think, I think there are some good Kinder products out there. Uh, oh, uh, an unsigned text here. The strawberry ones are a different version of the Werther's original. All right. Ah, okay, okay. That's fine. Uh, keep the text coming in. <laughs> we'll talk to, uh... Uh, Stephen Lung in just a minute, NBA editor for Sportsnet. NBA draft is tonight. You psyched? I, I feel like lost in the hoopla because the NBA draft and the NFL draft are the ones that you see like immediate impact, right? It's these guys step oh, yeah. in and you can see how your franchise is going to change and you, you see how they, uh, you know, can – you can tell pretty quickly if they're going to thrive. And I, I look at the NHL and MLB, it takes some time while they're high-profile events, of course, obviously. In the, in the NHL draft, you see a lot of trades, as we did this past week. The NBA draft is usually chaotic. And loss in the shuffle between you know NFL training camps, free agent signings, MLB trade deadline, is the NBA draft. Yeah, well, I mean, we were joking about with John Morosi earlier in the show, right? Having that only a two-day gap between NHL free agency and the Major League Baseball trade deadline. And above and beyond that, we're squeezing in the NBA draft tonight. And, you know, it's the draft, as you say. These are immediate impact players. It is kind of funny because it's flown under the radar. And so, you know, we'll talk about this uh, with Stephen Lund coming up in just a second here. But, you know, Cade Cunningham is going to be the first overall pick. And... I until this week, I didn't know a lot about Cade Cunningham, I'll admit it, but then all of a sudden you dive in and people are raving about this kid. And I feel like a lot of casual NBA really started to grasp the talent that's at the top of this draft. Well, the uh, Pistons are on the clock. Again, widely uh, reported they will take Cunningham number one. Well, the Raptors are sitting at fourth overall, and there's also some Canadian content in this draft as well. Let's talk to Stephen Lung now, uh, NBA editor for Sportsnet. Uh, Steven, thanks a lot for giving us some time today. Uh, so starting at the top, uh, just as we were talking about with Cade Cunningham, how good can he be? So uh, Cade Cunningham uh, is, so picture, you know, like uh, he's, he's like, a, like a big point guard, right? Like he's, he's kind of 6'8", 
close to six nine. Uh, he's solidly built, you know, like a, about about two twenty to two thirty, and and he so he has all this size and 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 height, and but he's a point guard, so that's why you know like that's why he's he's going to go number one because he kind of fits this full sort of uh, like this full versatile NBA that 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 we that we live in because he can he has a great vision, he's good in the pick and roll. Um, so, so that's how that's his point guard skills coming across. But he can also shoot the ball. Like his mechanics are solid, uh, and, and and he can play wing like like pseudo Luka Doncic esque. Not quite there, but but kind but kind of like that. And he's also really strong, so he could theoretically be able to defend you know uh, power forwards and and be a bit of a combo forward as well. So it's this combination of versatility, skill, strength length and and a little bit of athleticism there as well and that's why he's gonna go number one you, you know not every first overall draft pick in the nba is created equal steven how would you compare cade cunningham as a prospect in the type of impact he can have in the nba to some of the other recent first overall picks we've seen so uh in, in terms, terms of, of, of a number one overall pick he's He's probably he's probably right up there with with uh, with some of the best that that we've seen kind of like over the years. Now, like, is is he a trans? Is he an entirely transformational, generational kind of guy like a LeBron James? That is yet to be seen, but he certainly looks to have the skill set and kind of the and like kind of like at least the baseline to become at least an NBA All Star. And if your baseline looks like you're at least going to become an all-star, that's pretty good uh, to work off of to maybe become a franchise cornerstone. So, you know, with that, you know, big guard thing that you were kind of talking about, you know, we see Doncic, I think of Ben Simmons too, and Lonzo Ball to some degree, guys who are just like 6'6 and above playing the point. is this what we're going to see more teams looking for to kind of get that, you know, fluid positionless type basketball that we've been waiting for? And rather than the traditional, Hey, if you're six forward and below, you're just a point guard. I, I think that's exactly what we're going to see. And also like, that's just kind of the way, uh, you know, the, the grassroots level of the game has gone basically uh, because of the way the NBA has, has transformed to a much more positionless game. Um, like, like, even even your your so-called big man prospects, they're all learning, you know, like uh, they're learning how, how to pass the ball, dribble it, and shoot it. So, in in, in that sense, like uh, the game has never been more more, I guess, like skill focused than than ever before. And so that's why essentially we're going to see like kind of everyone being able to kind of, kind of make reads in the pick and roll. Um, everyone, everyone be able to shoot it from from outside, and and like it, it's just a much more perimeter oriented game as opposed to before when you when you had you know your traditional like you know Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Elijah one center where you just want to dump it down low to him and try to get a bucket that way. Stephen, the Raptors right now sitting with the fourth overall pick, and I want to get into some of the potential trade talk with you in just a second, but let's say they do hold on to that pick and they make the selection at number four. It seems like there's the most chatter connecting them with Jalen Suggs, combo guard out of Gonzaga. What makes Suggs an enticing prospect for the Raptors at number four? So, um, like, 
Me personally, Suggs, he is my favorite prospect in this draft, and that's just because, you know, like for lack of a better term, he has the it factor. Uh, he, he obviously hit that very famous shot against UCLA in the, the national semifinals uh, in the NCAA tournament this, this past year. And that was just kind of a microcosm of who he is as a player in, in the sense that he will always make a winning play. Like if, if you want someone who it will do what it takes to win, he is the guy uh, be, because he is very unselfish he he'll he's looking to he'll kind of make the outlet pass to push ahead. He'll if he needs to take a shot, he will take it. Um, but but he'll still probably be looking to get his teammates more involved. But essentially, he makes decisions based off of is this the best decision to allow us to win the game more than kind of other players. And uh, and like that is a very similar from a, talking about a Raptors. You know, like it's very similar to a guy like. Kyle Lowry. He's a, so so. Think of uh, Jalen Suggs, sort of like a Kyle Lowry-esque player who just happens to be you know taller and more athletic. Well, I was gonna I was gonna mention that you know you talk about his character and the kind of clutch attributes he has and that it factor you're talking about and you know you could that describes Kyle Lowry. I think you could describe Fred Van Vliet like that as well. Is it that more than his his athleticism and his playmaking and all of that? Is it those attributes for Jalen Suggs that make him so attractive to the Raptors specifically? Because we've seen how they value those things in other players consistently. I I think for I think like you you nailed it right there right like the 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 Raptors kind of value kind of more uh, high character kind of players and Jalen Suggs is that is that kind of player and uh, and but this isn't to take away from from his, his athletic ability like like he's his athleticism kind of goes under the radar. And I think that's just mainly because uh, he's just kind of more of a, more of a power guy. He, like he's still kind of he's still kind of working on his on his finesse game, his in between game. And that's because you know he's really he, he's kind of spent most of his life split between two sports at, a, at an elite level. Uh, you know, like basketball and football, because he was a Mister uh, he's a Mister Football in, in the state of Minnesota as well. And so, kind of last season was sort of the first season in his life where he dedicated to basketball fully so so like he may just be kind of scratching the surface of what he could do as a basketball player because he's never really done it full time until this time uh, when he's entering his you know like the professional stage of his life Stephen Lung joining us, NBA editor uh, from Sportsnet. So, okay, so the Raptors draft fourth and you know I, I really like Jalen Suggs too um, but in a scenario, let's say he goes and the Raptors, you know, contemplate making a trade at four. What makes a lot of sense uh, if they were to make a, some trade? Because I see some proposals, you know, you see them on Twitter and NBA Twitter is always sending things out. I see a lot of these come out and, and not a lot of them look like they make sense to me. What, what motivations does Masai have to move number four? So if, if he wants to move up, um, if the Raptors want to move up, I would assume it's because they want to narrow in on Evan Mobley, the really talented uh, big man at, out of USC. Think of a, think of a Chris Bosh kind of big man who kind of, who, who is very athletic. He's got, he's got tremendous shot blocking instincts and a, a jumper that should, you know, like, like operative word there should, but um, he, it should turn into a pretty reliable weapon from him, for him down the line. Uh, so 
he just just from a from a pure talent standpoint, going after a guy like Mobley would fit really well with the Raptors. Now they wanted to trade down and possibly acquire like kind of a few more assets. You know, like I I would say they would probably be looking to trade down and then go after a guy like a Scotty Barnes from Florida State, who was kind of a Draymond Green sort of player where he's a combo forward or a kind of kind of a combo forward who's like a point forward where he has great uh, ball vision. He has great passing ability. Uh, he's very, very strong and athletic. The only knock on him is he is not a great shooter right now and may never be a great shooter. But, uh, but because of his great athletic ability and potential, like uh, he, and we've seen the success of Draymond Green, he is a player who might be very attractive for, for those Raptors teams who, who have done, you know, done pretty well with kind of project-like players. Like I, you think of a guy like Pascal Siakam, for example, who came in the league without much of a jumper and just a lot of athleticism, and that's very similar to Scotty Barnes here. Stephen, of course, the other trade possibility that the Raptors have been mentioned in connection with is going out and getting Ben Simmons from Philadelphia. And it certainly seems like the Sixers want to make that deal sooner rather than later. You know, I don't know quite what to make of it because I think Ben Simmons, obviously a very talented player with a lot of upside, but we also have seen it's hard to build a contender around him because of his unique skill set, because of some of the things he struggles with on the basketball court. I'm not sure it would be the cleanest fit in Toronto either. Does their interest in Ben Simmons make sense to you? It does, and it's for it's mainly because like the Raptors, I think, have the ancillary pieces to make it work around Ben Simmons. So you mentioned the fact, like, it's well known fact he cannot shoot the basketball, but it's also a fact that he's a six ten point guard who is still only twenty five years old. So if the Raptors are actually interested in Simmons, and uh, and it would probably maybe be like like a sign and trade or just Kyle Lowry leave. It would probably be a sign and sign and trade with with Kyle Lowry with um, with the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers. Uh, that's that's not a that's not bad, right? Because you can still have Fred VanVleet playing off the ball, where, where he's much more adept. You know, like he's he's a he's a good shooter. Um, and 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 then and then you could possibly have a really really interesting. You know, like Simmons, Pascal Siakam, pick and roll, which you know theoretically, like like that that is kind of unguardable, right? Where you, where you consider Siakam's offensive uh, talents and and Simmons' ability to like kind of dive to the basket and make passes from from anywhere, particularly at his height. I, I think I think it would work, and then also just defensively, this Raptors team with Ben Simmons in the lineup would be like like killer, you know, with with OG Van Vliet, Simmons, and Siakam, you could basically switch anything and everything, and 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 basically kind of swarm opposing offenses, and I think it'd be really really dangerous. Stephen Lung joining us, uh, NBA editor at Sportsnet. Uh, there is some Canadian content as well. Uh, six players uh, expected to go in the draft. How many of these do you expect to see uh, their names called in the first round? And in the first round, I would, I think we'll probably see two names. Um, and, and one of them is kind of just kind of like, like Canadian adjacent. Uh, so yeah. uh, Chris Duarte from, from Oregon, he, he's like a, he's, Technically, a Montreal native, but like he's more like Dominic, he's more of a Dominican kid, right? But but he's he's a kid who who, who can probably go kind of like 
late lottery, you know, like uh, like or, or just outside of the lottery. And there's also um, a very, very young prospect. He might actually be the youngest prospect in, in, this, in this year's draft, uh, Josh Primo from Alabama, who is expected to kind of go late first round, possibly early second round. But he's, he's only 18 years old. Uh, I believe his birthday is on Christmas Eve uh, when, he, when he turns 19. But, like he, but uh, both of these prospects are, are kind of first, considered first-round talents because they look like they'll develop into you know, really solid and dependable 3 and D kind of players, which is like probably the most important role player in the modern NBA right now. And Stephen, I also really enjoyed the piece you have up at sportsnet.ca right now on another Canadian in the draft, uh, Delano Banton. You know, the the kind of thesis of the piece is that he bet on, bet on himself to stay in the NBA draft this year. What makes him such an intriguing prospect? So Banton is, is very, very interesting uh, because he is a 6'9 point guard. Like we, we spoke about the versatility of Kate Cunningham. Similar player is just just like not quite just that's not quite the athlete, not quite the shooter that uh, that Cunningham is. But uh, well, really, what makes him interesting is the fact that he was a guy who uh, like like he was kind of an alternate on on the the G League Combine list, and he just kind of and he, he kind of flew in uh, like kind of the day before, impressed, you know, like like had a very very strong camp almost made 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 like kind of this like the regular prospect camp but because he impressed so much in that G League elite camp uh he started he started getting a lot of offers and a lot of intrigue from around the league and and it sounds like um even though he had the decision he he could have returned to Nebraska uh, it sounds like he got enough interest where he decided to stay in and if if he goes like i if he does get drafted i think whoever takes him are are in they're in for a bit of a project but they're also in for a player with tremendous upside because you know he has size length he can really pass the ball. He he understands pick and roll very well. Uh, what 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 he really needs to do though, he needs to kind of bulk up and he needs to work on that jumper. He is Stephen Lung, NBA editor at Sportsnet. Stephen, thanks a lot for giving us some time and uh, prepping us on uh, what's going to be happening tonight in the NBA draft. Take care. Yeah, it's no problem. That's uh, Stephen Lung from uh, Sportsnet, NBA editor. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, at Stephen uh, underscore Lung, L-O-U-N-G. Uh, or sorry, uh, at Lung underscore S, uh, L-O-U-N-G. Uh, should be fascinating tonight. Uh, you know, th- th- there was a couple of questions here uh, coming in as well uh, of which sport has the best draft. Uh, as far as made for TV or most entertainment, I, I kind of think both both might be NFL. Yeah, NFL. I know you were going to say NFL because you are so locked in on the NFL draft. The NBA draft is up there, though. I mean, first of all, one thing I like about it is done in one night, right? They they tag on the That's second true. round, That's wrap true. it all up in one night. I love that. And the volume of the thing that the NFL the NFL draft has trades of picks, right? Which is interesting and which is exciting. But just the nature of NFL player based trades are so much less common, right? The NBA, you have those big blockbuster deals with stars going in multiple directions, right? So I lean a little bit towards the NBA, but the clear top two are the NFL and the NBA. 
So okay, so for made for TV, I would say NFL is the best, and but perhaps most entertaining. You're right, might be the NBA, and, and even just the like. We we see it all the time when a pick is made, and it's like traded to Atlanta, yeah. who's picking in three picks still, and it's like, well, he's wearing a Dallas Mavericks hat. Like, what yes. are we doing? Like, what are we doing here? And I, I love the prospects trading hats all the time. That's always great stuff. Yeah, it, it's the NBA draft. I I always always enjoy. It. You know, you you get to see what uh, what's going on in NBA fashion circles. That's always very very interesting. I find at the draft. So I, I'm a big fan of the NBA draft. Uh, Bick Nazar and Jamie Dodd will be back with uh, a bit more conversation. Want to follow up on some of the Aaron Rodgers stuff we're talking about. Uh, and, and also, uh, what did uh, the Seattle Kraken do that uh, did not impress Jamie and uh, even myself for, for what we were talking about a couple of days ago? Uh, what exactly is the Seattle Kraken plan? Your reaction on the way as well. 650-650-960-960. Bick Nazar, Jamie Dodd filling in for Rintoul and Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Welcome back to Rintoul and Sermon. Beck Nazar and Jamie Dodd filling in for this week. Uh, literally right after we were talking about the NBA draft, I just saw someone retweet uh, a clip of uh, of Eric Andre, very popular comedian. Uh, yeah. Pictures. Congrats, Cade Cunningham. There is a similarity there as well with the hair. That's really good. I can see it. Yeah, with the hair. With the hair. Yeah. Uh, uh, Czar, by the way, Sorry, hold yeah. on. By the way, you know, I know when we had uh, Frank Saravelli on, we had a bunch of people texting in, uh, telling us to give him a little ribbing for spoiling yeah. the Seattle expansion draft. Which, I, whatever, that's his job. I have no uh, issue. With I, I that. saw all the text. I appreciate all the text. I was going to yeah. ask him, but we were running late, and I was like, I got to get the Pedersen question in. Yeah, but um, if you are a, an NBA fan, if you were planning on oh, consuming yeah. any of the draft <laughs> content, you're going to want to mute. Adrian Wojnarowski right about now because he is I mean I don't know how many hours are we out from this thing he has already broken the number one pick which is going to be Cade Cunningham to the Detroit Pistons and then just a few minutes ago uh he says with Cade Cunningham as a solid number one to Detroit now Houston and Cleveland continue to trend toward Jalen Green and Evan Mobley with the second and third pick so there you go he is already three picks into the draft and we are hours and hours away from it so uh, yeah, if you, uh, I mean, I guess I just spoiled it for you, so sorry about that. But if you don't want anything else spoiled, Spoiler alert. you're going to want to stay away from uh, Adrian Wojnarowski's Twitter uh, Twitter feed for a while. We did a thing on the show last year uh, for the NBA draft. Because Woj does that, right? He'll, he'll, yeah. he'll use specific terminology, right? Yes. Like, trending he says it without saying it. it. Yes. Yeah. And so we drafted uh, phrases... <laughs> and waited to see when they would pop up. And I'm pretty sure it was Josh Elliott Wolf, our, our intrepid board op and uh, producer, who managed to win it. It was like by pick seven or pick eight. But the goal is, you know, draft, you know, pick some names. I think I picked a, a lasering in on. Yes, uh, zeroing in on. I think yeah, he, he yeah. enjoys. Uh, momentum towards... is building to pick <laughs> this guy. Yeah. You can go through so many. So if you're looking for a, a, a – instead of muting Woj, because, you know, sometimes I, I mute people and I forget to unmute them. And I was like, boy, I haven't seen a tweet from this guy in a long time. And then I, I realized I muted them. Uh, so it, hold on. It, it, I, if you don't want to mute them and you want to play a game with Woj's tweets tonight, uh, try that. So, okay. I, I And um, obviously there was a lot of discussion about this topic for the expansion draft and, and how Frank Saravelli just was yeah. all over it, getting pretty much every pick. And people say, ah, I don't like it because I want to be surprised. 
And my response to that is, well, it's still a surprise. It's just a question of when you find out the surprise. And I have a, I have a higher stakes real life example. <laughs> hey, that is of this. true. That is true. Okay. I didn't think of that. No, no, no. So hold on. So uh, we have a three year old daughter, my wife and I, and uh, we're actually due to have a second in the fall as well. So and both times, you know, you go Was to that the a ultrasound. Surprise? Well, no, 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 hold on. You go to the <laughs> ultrasound, and they they say, do you want to know the sex of the baby? And yeah. both times, we've said, sure, yeah, absolutely. And it's been a girl. They've told us, so we know we're having a girl in the fall. And we've talked to our friends, and they say, no, we didn't do that. We want it to be a surprise. Well, I was still surprised when the ultrasound technician told me. Sure. It's a surprise whenever it happens. It, it's the same thing as this. It's a still a surprise. Oh, Woj tweeted it. I'm surprised. I didn't have to wait to find out. That's all. Yeah, it's not like you're submitting a Christmas list and you're like, hey, this is how it goes. I I, I know what I'm going to get or something like that. It's uh, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, that's a good analogy. I like that. I like this from uh, Marcus and Gibson's. He says, all clues point to Cunningham. Signed, Detective Woj. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what you should do, man. If, if, if you're in group chats that are all following along with some friends on the NBA draft... Pick out some phrases. Whoever wins gets like the the, the first round. Uh, next time you all meet up, whatever it is, make a game of the NBA draft. Especially now that we know uh, the first three picks. But well, then Masai, it, but Masai is the tough nut to crack in the NBA, right? Okay, like he he's the Stevie Y of the NBA. You know, it took forever for for them to find out who Detroit was going to lose in the expansion draft. Masai yeah. is the guy who doesn't leak. So it'll be interesting to see. Can Woj get a handle on that number four pick? Before the draft goes live tonight. Well, okay. Here's the thing I'm interested in now, because if, if if they're on the clock, right, and essentially they are, is Masai for the rest of the NBA? Is Masai not like the worst person you want to give control of trans- transactional power 100%, across the league? Hundred like, percent. This is a great outcome if you're a Raptors fan. It's like giving it to Julian Brisebois, putting Julian Brisebois in this situation, right? Where you just know the other general managers are not up to the task of matching wits with him. That's a little bit what it feels like for Masai Ujiri right now. He is sitting in that sweet position. If he wants to trade that pick, if he wants to keep it, he is he he's loving life right now. And, and I do think uh, for for what Stephen Lung when he was talking about. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Like Suggs, hey, a, a team first guy willing to make the the right play. Think of Lowry. Think of Fred Van Vliet. That unselfishness uh, of of playing along to to do whatever is best for the team. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. But uh, now Masai gets to play this at his tempo. Uh, play this out and and wait this out to see if he can make the right transaction if he were to trade off of it. Yeah, it's it's exactly where he wants to be, man. Uh, Bick Nazar and Jamie Dodd here. While we were talking to Steven, a couple other things happened. Uh, the New York Jets uh, finally managed to uh, sign their quarterback, Zach Wilson, second overall. They waited until uh, camp started to really uh, lock this one down because, you know, the, the previous couple of months in, in, in draft slotting uh, w- was really a hindrance to try to solve this, but they finally uh, managed to get a contract down with, uh, with Zach Wilson. And don't you kind of feel after all the delay and buildup that, I mean, I, I'm not particularly high on him as a prospect, as a fit with the Jets. I don't know about you, but it's kind of funny. There's this, oh, he's holding out and oh, we finally got him under contract. Let's go. But I still think it's probably going to be a letdown when he gets onto the field. I get the attractiveness uh, to Zach Wilson. It, 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 he looks 
like a lot of fun. Kind of that Johnny Menzel style, and, and like the professional version of Johnny Menzel, not necessarily the the train wreck. Like the ideal version of it working in the NFL. There is that playground mentality to it. How reliable is that, and how consistent can you be with that? I'm a little concerned, uh, but look, a lot of people seem to love Zach Wilson, that they were willing to put him up that high second overall, and the New York Jets obviously go ahead and select him. I'm skeptical, and I feel like it's the worst team he could have landed on with you know, the, the whole New York hoopla and everything like that. Uh, but uh, it remains to be seen. But you're right, they, they did take kind of come the some of the sizzle off of it of, as far as uh, here we are, we draft this guy, we let it get to a holdout. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you don't see a lot of top pick holdouts in the NFL these days. That was kind of that kind of a weird one that flew under the radar, I felt like, a little bit. Certainly up here, we're, we're so locked in on hockey through, throughout July this year. Um, I wanted to get this in. We, we, were, we were talking about Aaron Rodgers earlier in the show, and, of course, he reported to camp yesterday, had the press conference where, you know, he made a lot of news, basically went out there and said – Look, I'm I'm I am the Green Bay Packers. I'm the reason people want to come here and also I've got a lot of problems with the way veterans in the past have been treated as they're leaving this team. I promised uh, our texter Matt in Calgary 960-960 if you want to chime in that we'd get his take on the air. So he says, "You're talking about no one being bigger than the brand. QBs are a different breed. Where would the Packers be without Rodgers? The lottery, that's where." And in the case of guys like Clay Matthews, Julius Peppers, Randall Cobb, those guys all did their job perfectly for Green Bay. They fit their role. Once they were leaving their primes, the places they went to paid slash hoped that they would be all-stars they used to be didn't work out. Plus, Rodgers took the Packers to back-to-back NFC championships, and then they drafted his replacement and a second-round corner of their first pick last year. Rodgers is in the right here. And, I mean, I, I gotta say, I agree with a lot of what Matt has to say. As you pointed out, Vic, you know, all those that list of veterans – that Green Bay let walk, that Aaron Rodgers has an issue with, it's not as if those guys went on to be dominant players elsewhere. I mean, you could make a pretty good case for every single one of them that Green Bay cut bait at the right time. I don't think it's an issue of Aaron Rodgers being necessarily wrong about anything he's saying, with the exception of, you know, oh, we should have held on to all of these guys. It's one about you know, should you say it, right? Is that Marge Simpson clip of he's right, but he shouldn't say it? That's kind of what we're saying about Aaron Rodgers here. Because to Matt's point, yeah, QBs are different. They do have a different level of status in the NFL. But the other thing I would say is, you know, if you're you're directing fire at Aaron Rodgers for these comments, you also got to point the finger at Green Bay. Because Green Bay engineered this scenario by deciding not to trade Aaron Rodgers in the offseason, right? If they didn't want to have this kind of circus and this kind of distraction, they would have found a way to move on from Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I mean, Green Bay isn't blameless in this at all. And and for what Rodgers was talking about, look, we know quarterbacks get certain special treatment. I mean, just look at the way the, the game is officiated. Quarterbacks get special treatment. You can breathe on their helmet. It's like, whoa, 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 15 yards. You can't do that. Meanwhile, you can lower your head and and completely demolish a guy, and a ref can be like, ah, you know, I think I'm willing to allow that one. We'll we'll let that one slide for now. It it, it happens. Quarterbacks get preferential treatment. We get that. And and to his credit, he did say, look, I'm not looking to try to massively influence decisions. I just want to be used as a resource. But it's making that part public. It's, It's making... 
making it seem like you think you are bigger than the organization. That's the part that I look at and I say, hey, like, you're still, you still need to get 53 people to buy into you. And the thing that he's talking about of, of playing with his friends, I guess this is my question. Do you want to play with your friends or do you want to win? And Aaron yeah. Rodgers has done a lot of winning. And Marcus Valdez-Scantling is a guy that they try to bring on. Alan Zard's a guy they try to bring in. They've had other players come through their entire system. Hey, some of them don't work out. I get it. That's part of the problem. But you're also trying to usher in this this uh, this belief that hey, everyone can compete for a roster spot. And you're, you're doing it on a meritocracy like he was talking about. Well, it sounds like he wants to just play with Randall Cobb. And it sounds like he just wants to bring his guys back. How is that a meritocracy? It's not. And again, I, I completely agree with the criticism of Aaron Rodgers. The idea that, you know, what's been missing from Green Bay over the last number of years is, you know, guys like Randall Cobb and go down the list of veterans that he's complaining about. No, that's not that hasn't been the problem to the extent that there even even is a problem in Green Bay. Vic Nassar, Jamie Dodd here with you. Uh, we'll get into uh, more conversation uh on the Canucks on the other side uh, of the break when we're uh, local on Sportsnet 650. Um, but you wanted to touch on the Seattle Kraken because, you know, when we were talking about teams that were uh, disappointing um, or maybe confusing, you brought up to me the Seattle Kraken. So I know I talked about this earlier in the week and I got a little bit of pushback, but I am still just very underwhelmed by how Seattle has entered the league here. And you just go through the timeline, right? They make their picks in the expansion draft, and you can see the plan, which was they absolutely valued cap flexibility over everything else. But even within that plan, there was plenty of picks that made people say, okay, well, we must, we're going to see a side deal here, right? They didn't just decide to pick that guy. They made that pick, you know, because the other team paid them something to protect other players, right? Well, that didn't materialize. They didn't get a single side deal done to get some extra draft value back. And it seems like that was a missed opportunity. Maybe Ron Francis just set prices way too high this time around. Okay, so they don't get any side deals done. Then you look at it and say, well, they loaded up on defense. They're going to be able to flip some of those defenders because they have so many of them. There's such a need for defensemen around the league. They'll get some value out of the expansion process in that way. Haven't done that yet. And teams around the league, by and large, have filled those major holes on their blue line. And again, you just look at the players that they took. I don't really buy the idea that they have this wealth of high-value defensemen to move if they want to. They're not going to move a guy like Mark Giordano, not right now. They went out and signed and committed to Jamie Alexiak and Adam Larson. So I don't think they're going to move those guys right now. They also have no trade clauses. And then you look at it down the list. How much are you getting for Hayden Flurry? How much are you getting for an RFA Vince Dunn? I'm not sure those types of guys, if you did want to float them out there, are moving the needle much for you in their return. So they don't make the side deals. They don't immediately flip. You know, I know they traded Pitlick to Calgary for a mid-level pick. Okay, that's great. They don't immediately flip any of the players they selected for future draft assets. So what you're left with going into free agency is, well, at least they have all of this cap space and they're going to be able to make a splash in free agency. The problem with free agency is those deals usually don't work out very well. And this wasn't a situation where they went out and landed, you know, Dougie Hamilton and Gabe Landeskog. And those were going to be the, the finishing pieces on this roster going in to their expansion season. Jane Schwartz is a nice player, really nice player. I like Jane Schwartz a lot. 
He's also 29. He's seen his production go down, and you gave him five years. Alex Wenberg, yeah, decent player. But you're signing him coming off a career year with a sky-high shooting percentage, probably not going to continue. Philip Grubauer, how often do big contracts for goalies work out, especially guys who are 29 who have struggled to stay healthy? You can poke holes in all of those contracts. So if the goal was, hey, we're going to set ourselves up to make a big splash in free agency, we're going to preserve all of this cap space fanatically, we won't take anyone else that could cloud our cap picture because we want to do it all in free agency, is this really, did you get value out of that plan? Did it work out how you wanted? Did they get enough value out of the entire expansion process? And one of the things that went down specifically with Washington, I think really illustrates how they misplayed things here, right? Okay. From the Washington Capitals, they took the goalie Vita Vanacek, right? And also left unprotected by the Capitals was the defenseman, Brendan Dillon. Now, Brendan Dillon had a few years left on his deal. He's older. He's making some money. So you can understand kind of why Seattle didn't want to pick him. They they are all about cap space. But then Washington immediately go and tr- goes and trades Brendan Dillon to Winnipeg for a pair of second round picks, right? Then Seattle decides we don't want our we don't want Vanacek anymore actually because we got the opportunity to sign Philip Grubauer. Washington will trade him back to you for one second round pick. So just right there they did not correct, correctly identify the value of the players that were available to them in the expansion draft. A guy they could have taken and immediately traded for two second-round picks, they passed on him, instead took a goalie who was worth less than that. And I think that crystallizes it, right? Ron Francis, whether he overvalued cap space or didn't understand how hot the market for certain players would be for veteran defensemen like Brendan Dillon, whatever the case may be, they have missed their unique opportunity as an expansion team to really leverage things and really take advantage of teams around the NHL. Because now guess what? You're just another team with a bunch of cap space. There's a lot of teams like that. And we talked about it earlier in the show, Bick. It's one thing to have cap space. It's actually pretty tricky to convert that cap space into a contending roster. And if the way you're going to do it is by splashing out in free agency, that gets really expensive and really dangerous in a hurry. So look, I'm not saying they have no chance of making the playoffs because they're in a weak division. And they do have talent on this roster. I like a lot of their players. But you just look at the expansion process. Don't focus on the results next year. Have they set themselves up for long-term success? I don't think they have here. I think this is a major, major missed opportunity by the Kraken. So we were talking about this on Monday. And uh, actually, before I get to that, a couple of good texts coming in at 650, 650. Uh, this one, uh, uh, by signing Grubauer, it seems like they're kind of following Vegas's model by trying to rely on goaltending and maybe have a couple of surprises with their selections. They have talked about, hey, inflated roles for guys. You know, someone like Yanni Gord, I'm curious, you know, with a more prominent offensive role, does he produce a bit more? Uh, than than previously expected. Jared McCann, you know, the the numbers, the analytics, love Jared McCann. In a more traditional second-line role, is this someone that can, you know, fulfill that potential? Same thing with Jamie Oleksiak, you know, rise him up the lineup. What happens with someone like that? So, uh, you know, the the, the texture has a point that maybe they're relying on uh, their own evaluations of players to say these were guys that were underutilized and we can get more out of them uh, in our lineup. Uh, but for what you're talking about, as far as uh, asset potential, we talked about this on Monday, and I defended the Kraken process to say they do have a lot of cap space still available to them. Obviously, 
income. Yesterday, they spent a lot of it. Uh, but they still have $16 million in cap space. And for what you're mentioning, Jamie, hey, turning cap space into contending are two vastly different things. I will say for the process, as far as acquiring assets to try to continue to build that future, a lot of what's available to them is is going to be some dead money. and also, or It's not dead money, but money that comes off the books. They are still very flexible. And we heard from Ron Francis, like one of their goals was to be flexible and, and have – money available there's 16 million dollars away from the cap right now next year slated according to cap friendly around 32 million dollars so they'll still have options but yes it is that competitive environment of which teams are going to be set up to be financial havens uh for teams to capitalize on weaponizing your cap space i am still skeptical like detroit at some point just has to become better buffalo just has to become better so I do look at some teams, and it's not as if Arizona is like thrilled to spend a lot of money, like real cash dollars, uh, right now. Their their cap might be somewhere around seventy million dollars. I think their actual uh, expenditure is is a bit lower than that. And, and so, like, w- what point uh, are you actually competing against some of these teams to to take advantage of those financial opportunities? But doesn't that seem kind of unambitious to you? You know, like, I, I don't, again, I'm not saying I, it, the expectations should be It feels like they're Vegas. threading the needle. How about that? It feels like they're trying to serve two to three masters here. But if your plan is we're going to preserve flexibility so next year we can take on a bunch of dead money and start building future assets, I, that's just that's such a low bar given the opportunity I think they had here. Well, yeah, it's that financial aspect, waiting for the trade market aspect. It's trying to be somewhat relevant and competitive aspect because I do think that's part of it too. Of you know, we saw with the with the Vegas Golden Knights, the team was more competitive than we realized. They drafted an okay team and obviously inflated roles. Some guys had a lot more success than anticipated. I don't hate the Kraken roster as much as it gets made out. Uh, I, I, for you know, for what you're talking about, you're talking about missed opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, not saying the like I've seen people say, oh, this roster is going to be a punching bag. I don't think that they well, have good I, players on the team. I, I think one of the lessons we learned from Vegas was we approached them as, oh, it's an expansion roster; they're going to be default. They're, they're going to be terrible, and that was the default assumption rather than actually analyzing and evaluating the team. And I think that lesson by media fans alike has been you know, heated. And we look at this roster now, and you think, okay, like. Giordano and Dunn and Alexiak and Larson and Susie. Like, the, a, a lot of teams don't have that type of defense on, on their blue line. And then For you, sure. you backdoor with, with Grubauer and Dreed, you can, you can see a way that this team can have success. And there is real talent. This isn't William Carlson, uh, Carlson thinking, oh, like, what are the chances he's going to rebound? This is Yanni Gord. Like, Yanni Gord has had offensive success in this league. Jaden Schwartz. Uh, for what you mentioned, really, really fun yeah. player and, and a quote-unquote real hockey player. Now, there's injury concerns. I get that. Uh, but you can see the pathway to success. It isn't as bleak as it looked with Vegas. And I think competitively, perhaps they get to the draft, and the, the expansion draft, and it was an element of, you know, we can actually craft a better team than we thought. A couple of texts I want to get to quickly here. Brendan Nanaimo says, Jamie, did Ron Francis know Grubauer would be available? Maybe he selected Vanacek thinking he'd be a goalie for them next season. That's true. He didn't know Grubauer would be available. He did know there would be a lot of other goalies on the trade market available in free agency. And my point is, you expected them to approach the expansion draft with the goal 
of collecting as much value as possible, right? And that's just a very good example of they didn't get the more valuable player. Brendan Dillon had more value around the league than Vanacek. They took the wrong player if their goal was to maximize value. And then the other text I wanted to respond to is uh, this texter unsigned says, having money around, they'll get to make big signings like Vegas did with Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty. But the thing is, those were trade acquisitions first before they re-signed those guys. And I think the underrated thing about being an expansion team, the underrated difficulty is you have no farm system. You have no prospect pipeline, right? They draft Matt Beniers number two overall, but outside of that, you do not have guys who have been marinating in the minor leagues. The genius of what Vegas did was they were able to immediately create that prospect pipeline by acquiring more draft capital. And I think that's the biggest missed opportunity for Seattle. Uh, the thing with uh, uh, the, the text we got before about uh, Grubauer available, well, he would have spoken to him prior to the expansion draft. They had that exclusive window. Yep. So if you had an idea if he was going back to Colorado, you should have had an idea back then, even before you made your selection from Colorado. So, yeah, yeah. you could have. Uh, this one, Greg, the dairy farmer. I don't think can judge the Kraken team until, until they were playing. Vegas was supposed to be garbage until we realized how much more potential players like William Carlson had. Absolutely. That's part of the equation. We'll wait and see what happens with uh, the Kraken. Uh, we will depart from Calgary. Big show uh, is on the way on 960. We'll be back here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Harmon Dial going to join us uh, to talk about the Vancouver Canucks and the spending they did yesterday. It's Vic Nazar, Jamie Dodd, here on Rintoul and Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Welcome back. Vic Nazar and uh, Jamie Dodd filling in for the rest of the week here on Rintoul and Sermon. We hope they're having a great holiday. You'll hear from them soon. Thank you for making us a part of your day. Uh, a lot coming into the 650-650 text message inbox today. It's been lively. Kinder surprise takes, Werther's original takes, Kraken takes. It's all happening today. People are especially fired up about, I think, the Werther's original. That that really hit a nerve for whatever reason when Minor Matt came out uh, all in favor of Werther's original. A lot of questions about his age uh, after that one. And somebody came in with, like, strawberry candy texts. Uh, one person said, Google strawberry hard candy that you find at your grandma's house. That was the best suggestion and the best text we got today. That was and I actually did that. And I was like, oh, right. Oh, okay. yeah, I know that candy. Yeah. Oh, it, it came back with actual results? Well, I didn't I didn't Google the that you find at your grandma's house part. But I, I did Google strawberry hard candy. And I was like, ah, oh, that's right. That's what they're talking about. Oh, this one. I totally yes, get it. Exactly. No, these aren't that good. Exactly. These aren't that good. Well, they're fine. They're Werther's original. They're, you set the bar so low for Werther's original. It's the exact same thing. Uh, okay, this isn't what I thought it was. I, I thought I thought Werther's original had like a strawberry flavor. No, Werther's original has like a caramel flavor, doesn't it? No, no. I, sorry. Okay, sorry. I was thinking of cream. Oh, savers. I see what That's you mean. There's a strawberry. Yes. There's a yes, strawberry yes. variation of Werther's. Yes. Sure. I, I, but there's I also the separate. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, okay. Okay, uh, we're all caught up. Cream savers. Those. Woo. I, yeah. We're good. We're good. <laughs> Minor Matt. Touch and go there for a second. Touch and yeah. go. Minor Matt is loving it in the text and message inbox. Uh, keep the thoughts coming in. Uh, 650, 650. We'll talk to Harmon Dial in just a second. Continue to react. Uh, 
I got to read this one. All these candies we were talking about are always in a bowl at the ICBC Center. I don't know why that's killing me so much, but it's really making me laugh. That is so specific, and I can completely understand what he's talking about. It's just a beautifully painted image by Marcus and Gibsons right there. I I enjoy that one very much. Uh, This unsigned text, have either of you ever tried... You gotta wake up pretty early to uh to, to get names past us. So nice attempt. Nice attempt. We're not gonna read it. Uh you gotta wake up pretty, pretty early. We're not here to fall into your traps. Uh but thank you for the attempt. Uh let's get into it uh, with what the Canucks did uh yesterday. Uh joined now with uh Harmon Dial uh from the Athletic in Vancouver at Harmon Dial two on Twitter. Uh Harmon, what would you say uh uh how would you describe the Canucks uh, busy day yesterday? Right-handed defensemen. I mean, they signed five of them, right? Um, and really, I think that was quite a pointed emphasis. Um, makes sense considering Tyler Myers was their only everyday right shot D going into the day. And um, I think when you look stylistically at the profile of many of them, whether it's Pullman, Hamannick, um, even working your way down to Shen and Brady Keeper, um, there was clearly an emphasis on rugged, uh, physical players who the club believes can be solid, solid in their own end. And I, I think that stems from the club's belief that um, when they look at the left side of their defense and they look at Quinn Hughes and they, and they look at all of Reckman Larson and, and they look at Jack Rathbone, I think they see um, offensively calibrated puck movers. And so accordingly, I think um, they had a kind of player prototype in mind and um, they stocked up as many right shot D that fit that bill. And um, when it comes to Hamannick, I think considering the lack of abundant options um, with respect to right shot D, that kind of made, kind of made sense. Um, especially again the stylistic element um, and you know the the way he kind of fit into the team last year. Again, I think he's closer to being a third pair quality defenseman at this stage in his career, but. Um, On this kind of shallow right side, he is someone who can step up and play alongside Quinn Hughes. Um, I think where the club ran into a little bit of trouble, and and this, again, kind of just, um, you know, draws back to how hard it is to find right side defensemen. The free agent agent market was thin. There weren't a lot of options um, through trade. Um, You have the Tucker-Pullman contract, which I honestly wasn't uh, particularly fond of. Um, Pullman can be helpful in a third pair role, but you talk to anyone who watched him in Winnipeg. And this is a player who, um, when he stepped up into kind of a tougher minutes role in the top four, um, was definitely a little bit in over his head. Um, and so in, in that sense, Pullman, he, you know, he's, he, he can help out defensively and he kills penalties, block shots. Again, kind of has a similar profile to Hamannick. Um, definitely some grit and, and some physical element to his game, but he struggles to move the puck and against top end speed and skill when he is playing against top, tougher competition in the top four, um, he can be exposed. And so the four years of term and um, 2.5 million annually is, is, is was definitely a little bit rich for my blood, but um, again, it's just, that's the nature of the beast where right-handed defensemen are, are some of the toughest commodities to source out externally. You kind of have to draft and develop them yourself and, um, so, you know, when I kind of shape out, uh, how the Canucks, um, you know, went about their free agency business, I think they kind of had to check off some of those boxes didn't happen really in an ideal way, but, 
Um, I think given the rest of their off season, you know, at least they were able to accomplish um, a lot of um, their other positional needs. And, and obviously the right side is now a little bit of a weakness, but um, they've at least brought in some short-term options. So I guess the big question, Harmon, when you look at their defense specifically, is how much better, if at all, is is this defense group, defensive group uh, compared to last year's team? Well, I think a lot of it's going to hinge on internal improvement, and it's and it actually goes back to a name that most people won't bring up in this discussion, and that's Quinn Hughes, because um, last year's version of Hughes was a far cry from what he delivered as a rookie, and so even that difference um, could be mammoth if the Canucks can get the rookie version of Quinn Hughes that was not only elite offensively and on the power play, but could really hold his own in terms of two-way performance as well. Um, And so, you know, that would be, I think that's a crucial X factor, seeing what version of Quinn Hughes the Canucks get. Uh, When you look at OEL versus Edler, um, I, I think you can definitely make the case that Ekman Larson coming to Vancouver with a fresh start should be an upgrade on Edler. Um, but then even with kind of the down year that Schmidt had, I definitely believe that Pullman is a downgrade on Schmidt. Um, you know, I guess further down the lineup, you have Rathlin coming in and he, sh- he, he should be an upgrade on, on the, bo- on the bottom pair. Um, so I guess, you know, you can quibble with exactly how much, you know, the, the back end improved. I think it's more or less pretty similar to last year. And you're going to really have to bet on, I think, Quinn Hughes taking the next step. Because if he can be an ace, uh, bona fide, number one elite defenseman, the kind of player that he was as a rookie, and, and he can kind of be one of the top ten defensemen, even, even you know, going into last year, remember, we were kind of talking about him, or at least um, I was, is, you know, maybe he can be a dark horse Norris candidate. So the point is, if he can really be the leader of this blue line, that's what they're going to um, need him to be because I think the rest of the pieces are more or less um, are more or less similar in quality to uh, last year's blue line. What kind of fascinates me about the four-year term for Poolman, and they only give two years to to Travis Hamannick, is you know does the term kind of also indicate who gets that prime responsibility to be next to? Uh, Quinn Hughes and Jim Benning when he joined the station yesterday kind of alluded to and, and, and look I, I can bet against the comp of being a Chris Tanev replacement but he did allude to like hey we we, we missed Chris Tanev and, and this is something we wanted to explore and we saw Hamannick with Hughes last year who do you makes the who to you makes most most sense to play next to Quinn Hughes uh, I think it partially um, you know it, it's tough because I, I think Hamannick and Pullman at this stage are kind of pretty similar players. I think towards the end of the season, you know, I remember talking to Quinn Hughes and and I had a one-on-one there. And even though the numbers didn't bear them out as a particularly strong pairing with Hamannick, Hughes seemed to get more and more comfortable with uh, with him. Uh, But I think one thing's for clear, and that's that Pullman, especially, again, as you alluded to, given the term and given the commitment that they've given him, the way they described him, um, I'd expect that he's definitely going to be in the top four somewhere. It may, it may not be with, with Hughes, but if it's not with him, then it's going to, I, I'd imagine, be with OEL. And so, you know, in my mind, I could easily see the club looking at Pullman and saying, you know, he played some of the tougher matchups um, at points throughout the last two years with Josh, with Josh Morrissey. So if you have, say, the OEL pair as your matchup one, Maybe you throw Pullman into that role and go OEL Pullman. Um, but ultimately, I, I think 
it is something that you're also just going to have to kind of see the fit um, in camp because the thing to keep in mind is with uh, with Pullman, and, and again, the issue is, you know, him and Hamnick are kind of similar at this stage, um, is the puck-moving kind of burden because Pullman, that, that's not Pullman's game. And so alongside Queen Hughes, you know, that would be an opportunity where, um, you know, a player like Hughes would be able to insulate Pullman versus if he's with OEL, um, you know, Ekman Larson's still an above-average puck mover, but I don't think he's the elite distributor that he once was. And so um, if, you're, if you want to put OEL in a position to succeed and really maximize the odds of, uh, of a bounce back, um, you're, you're, gonna, you're just going to have to kind of see who fits better. But I honestly, when you look at all three right side D, it's, it's tough to really think of one option that kind of uh, sticks out. It, it is kind of, kind of going to have to be a patchwork uh, job in terms of working out the uh, exact combos in Paris. And, you know, Harmon, talking about who could line up alongside Oliver ekman Larson, it, it does seem like the Canucks brass really believes in OEL still as a player and plan to play him, you know, a lot of minutes and a lot of tough minutes, those hard matchup minutes, it seems like. So, you know, I think understandably that makes a lot of Canucks fans nervous given the level of play we've seen from Oliver ekman Larson over the last couple of seasons. And, and whether it's Pullman or Myers or Hamannick alongside of him, you know, that pairing that's going to be asked to play some very difficult minutes, it seems to me that that could be the pairing that kind of swings the Canucks season, right? Because either they're going to sink in those minutes or they're going to, or Oliver ekman Larson is going to bounce back and be able to survive those tough minutes. hundred percent. And um, that really is, he's kind of the X factor for the blue line because you look at, um, you know, after, after Hughes, there, there obviously isn't a whole lot. Um, you know, it, it just becomes Ekman Larson. And after that, uh, the back end gets pretty thin pretty quickly. I mean, you're obviously not going to expect uh, a rookie like Jack Rathbone to, to kind of play a prominent role um, in year one. So with OEL, um, he needs to be someone who, and I 100% agree, if, if you listen to management's kind of rhetoric, they refer to him um, as a potential number one defenseman and how they could, you know, with his arrival, deploy Hughes in different ways. I think they're definitely going to lean on him um, in a way that's similar to how Arizona would in OEL's prime, where he's going to log a ton of minutes, ton of, um, you know, hard minutes, and it's going to be a matter of, seeing how how much he exactly has I guess um left in the tank because he if he can you know Ekman Larson doesn't need to be the um top pairing stud that he once was as so as is a premier number one defenseman that's not a realistic expectation but if he can at least kind of hold his own and be a genuine top four piece um and really help anchor a second pairing then then that's I think the level of um, uh, a performance the Canucks are going to need to have a steady enough blue line um, to support, um, I think, what's rounding out to be a strong forward group. Uh, Harmon Dow joining us from The Athletic in Vancouver. When it comes to OEL, we've talked so much about, hey, he's got to make his own improvement, conditioning, motivation, all this sort of stuff that is internal to him external of him what about the environment change like what 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 set up in arizona that were detractors maybe outside you know outside of like hey the money issue and the financial investment just on the ice what environment 
changes that are now in Vancouver can be a benefit to him? Is he in a is he set up with better partners around him and just style of play that Vancouver might want to play? Is it better for his game? Yeah, I think it's better. I'm curious to see exactly how much better because if you look at the if if, if you look at the fit there in Arizona, obviously under Rick Tockett. Um, Ekman Larson just wasn't a fit with, him there, with the head coach and the system. They played ultra defensive, tried to keep things low event. Um, you know, the, the Coyotes tried to be the New, New York Islanders West in a sense. And so as a free flowing um, offensive D, that wasn't really the best fit for Ekman Larson. And so I think escaping that environment will be a benefit to him. But you know, coming to Vancouver system, and this is, you know, something I've noted before, I think the, the elements of, you know, Vancouver wants to play quickly and um, they allow their defensemen to pinch more aggressively to activate up the rush. I think those elements will allow Ekman Larson more freedom in his game. But the kind of concern I have are some of the other, other elements where if you look at the Canucks' system and, and how they kind of play, um, to create offense, they run an ultra-aggressive forecheck where they often commit three forwards um, deep on the forecheck. And what tends to happen there is, you know, a lot of times those forwards create those turnovers and they create the cycle offense that leads to, that powers Vancouver's, um, you know, offensive game. The issue is when they get beat in those, when that forecheck gets beat, it puts a lot of stress on Vancouver's defensemen where, um, if you have three forwards committed deep, you're not getting a lot of back pressure, back pressure. And so that, you know, is challenging for some of the defensemen uh, in Vancouver system, for instance, when defending the rush, because you don't have a lot of um, for support from your forwards. Um, even as simple as something uh, as, as breakouts where Vancouver's forwards, because they want to play so fast, will flee the zone early. And so there isn't a lot of puck support um, when you're trying to transition the puck up the ice. So, I think overall Vancouver system does place quite a bit of burden on, on the D uh, in both ways on transition. And I think that's definitely, you know, it's something that I've wondered about because you look at Chris Tanev and, you know, he went from Vancouver to Calgary and had a Renaissance season. H. Schmidt came from Vegas to Vancouver and he had a really tough go at it. Uh, and so I do wonder if it is a tough system to kind of um, become accustomed to, uh, if you're OEL, and, and definitely if you're playing with one of Pullman or Hamannick, you don't exactly have a genuine top four partner either. So I think, you know, the environment in terms of escaping an ultra defensive system will benefit OEL, but he's still going to have to play a tough uh, matchups role, logging a ton of minutes next to a third pair caliber partner in a system that does have a tendency in, in history of placing strain uh, on defensemen. So, uh, it, it it's going to help, but I'm not sure the extent to which it's going to um, assist Ekman Larson. I think a lot of the potential bounce back elements are going to have to come from the internal sources that we talked about in, in terms of psychological and, and just a fresh start and everything. Well, for all the tactical elements you're talking about there, the strain gets placed on defenders. I've maintained, like, this is the first time. I still feel like, you know, there's a shroud of mystery on the qualifications of of Travis Green. Now, I like the the personal level of Travis Green, how he connects with his players and getting buy-in from his players to execute his plan. And to me, that's the toughest part of any head coach in any sport is getting a group of people to buy into your plan. But now we can debate the actual merits of that plan with enough talented people on the, the, the team. 
you know, when, when you're looking at Travis Green, is he under the most pressure now to get this correct and, and start trending into a better, more positive style of play? Or is his style of play destined to fail? Well, the, yeah, no. I mean, I mean, you look at kind of Travis Green's history, um, and typically, with the exception of last year, he's been able to squeeze out um, quite a bit of value out of underman rosters. Now, at this point, he's got a top line forward group. You know, obviously the back end, it's it's the elephant in the room. It's um, it's definitely lacking, but at least up front, Green has a ton of options. Um, and flexibility with players that can play multiple positions. Um, you know, they have so many top nine wingers that can play uh, both flanks. They have multiple players in the likes of Miller and Dickinson that can play both center and wing. And so, you know, that Green has a ton of options, and that's what you want as a head coach. He has now enough talent to have a third scoring line, and so the Heat is definitely on in terms of now this is a team that um, at both, obviously, the management and coaching staff level – um, the expectation is going to be to make the playoffs. So, you know, if you want to talk about the system specifically, um, you know, obviously we all know it didn't work last year. It, it led to really permissive defensive results. But um, there was also the year before where the 2019-20 team was, you know, we talk about that aggressive forecheck. It allowed them to be the NHL's most improved offensive team. And when it came to playoff time, they were able to at least tighten things up defensively to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, relative to the talent level in the roster two years ago, um, the, the coaching staff squeezed everything they could have. Uh, so it's going to be really fascinating to see, uh, but no, no question that there's a ton of pressure on Green, on, on Benning, because with how aggressive they were and, and they've improved a ton, the expectations have to ratchet. Harmon, one of the things the Canucks got done yesterday that I, I think has received basically unanimous praise was just the incredible amount of legitimate depth they added to the organization. You know, a lot of players that will maybe compete for spots at the end of the roster, but certainly will suit up for Abbotsford and be available in case of an injury. And I, I mean, one, how how important is that added depth? And just in a tangible sense, how much can that actually help the team over the course of 82 games in the standings? going to be huge because um when you look at organizational um depth this is an issue that the canucks have historically kind of run into where um when you hit game 40 50 60 um you're inevitably going to run into a lot of injuries and 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 when that happens you need recall options that can legitimately play and i think that was an area where the canucks weren't as deep as they kind of needed to be um last year when you look at uh, a player like Mark Michaelis, um, you know, he really shouldn't have had to play NHL games, quite honestly. He just wasn't up to par. Or uh, even someone uh, someone like Louis Erickson at his stage of, at his stage of his career, when injuries kind of happened, you, you didn't want the club to have to shoehorn him into an everyday role. And, you know, he only played a few games. But I think this is now a situation where you look at the likes of, um, you know, uh, Brad Hunt on the back end and, you know, Brady Keeper, and, um, you know, you just look at how, how much further uh, uh, further back uh, a player like Madison Bowie gets pushed on the depth chart and understanding that they can run through so many back-end in- injuries now and they'll still at least have players that have NHL experience. And um, even up front, um, I think they really bolstered the center position 
Uh, we, we obviously know about the big league uh, signing of Brandon Sutter, and I think that was great value there. But um, even down the, uh, down the line, um, the, someone like Nick Batan, it, it's just it, it's really important, I think, for, for an organization, not just, for, not just to have extra depth for the NHL roster, but also you want your AHL affiliate to, to be strong, to be a, 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 a positive development environment for your young prospects as they kind of come up. Um, and there's no better way to do that than creating a, a winning kind of environment with um, talented veterans. And, and I think that's exactly what the Canucks accomplished. And uh, you look at the volume of the signings they had, that's, um, you know, they, they got a ton of business done in a very short window of time. So kudos to them for restocking um, the organizational depth and essentially building out in, uh, half an AHL roster. Uh, he is Harmon Dial from The Athletic in Vancouver. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you've been listening to the show today, Harmon, but uh, there's been a lot of candy talk, and the people want to know uh, what your favorite candy is, if you got a quick answer. Ooh, um, probably the, the sour uh, Skittles. All right, hey, classic. Pairs well with a Slurpee. That's yes. awesome. Very well. <laughs> well done. Uh, he is Harvin Dial from The Athletic in Vancouver, <laughs> at Harvin Dial 2. Uh, follow him on Twitter if you aren't already. Thanks a lot, Harm. Thanks, guys. Sour Skittles you're, and Slurpees, man. That's a classic summer pairing. You're like a uh, a candy sommelier. <laughs> oh, an excellent. Can <laughs> no, I have no, a no, pairing no. suggestion with that? I, I think I would be a Slurpee sommelier. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Right? Like the, the, the Sour Skittles to go with the uh, an all-Coke Slurpee. That's... That's where you want to go. You don't really want to mix, you know, grape with Pepsi or something like that. Yeah. When, when I ask the guys at 7-Eleven what would pair well with my Slurpee, they just give me weird <laughs> looks. I don't know. They're not into it. Sir, can you please leave? Please this just pay a... and leave. The <laughs> transaction this is... is over. <laughs> Our interaction does not need to be any more complicated than no. tapping the debit card. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's some teenagers behind you, like, dude, you got to get the sour keys with yeah, the cherry go cola. Go the sour keys, bro. <laughs> get on a skateboard. Go, go get in the Olympics. Go do that. Leave me alone with my purchases. Uh, Big Nazar, <laughs> Jamie Todd here on Sportsnet 650. Your thoughts? Game coming at 650, 650 uh, to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll be back in a minute here on Rintoul and Sermon. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon.